And today we're going to be looking at marriage and divorce, um, which is another hard conversation to be having. And I say that um, as someone who feels really privileged, actually, to be able to be preaching today. Um, these last three weeks have been hard preparing to share these messages with you because they're on sensitive subjects. And today is another one of those sensitive subjects. But I just feel really privileged as a pastor to be able to open the scriptures and to look at what Jesus's word says about these things and to help us to find him and to follow him and to navigate life with him in the midst of these topics, which are very real and raw. So I don't know if you've ever had a run of hard conversations with people you love where maybe like in one week or two weeks, you've got to sit down and just talk through some stuff with multiple people. But that's kind of how this has felt for me and maybe how this has felt for you as well. But the reason we have those conversations with the people we love and the reason we have those conversations here on Sunday is because they are important and because they are necessary and because not having those kinds of conversations would actually be unloving to the people that we care about most. I um, walked into the office this week and I was chatting to Parker, who's in the same kind of co-work space. And I just said, I'm going in the office now to prepare around marriage and divorce. And he said a few things to me, which I found really helpful. One of them that I enjoyed, and I think you might too, as he said, one of the things I love about Restored is that we talk about real things, not the Ned Flanders kind of Christianity that you see on TV. And I love that about us too. Uh, I love that we talk about hard things, real things, difficult passages of scripture and teachers of, uh, teachings of Jesus, and that we take his words so seriously, and that we want to follow him in the culture that we live in here in San Diego in 2022. So today we are talking about marriage and divorce, which is a hard topic to preach on. And I think it's hard primarily because this is something that has impacted all of us. This is personal, I'm pretty sure, for every single one of us in this room, whether you've gone through this yourself or whether your parents have or your family members or some friends of yours. Maybe you've watched people go through the pain and emotion and sadness of divorce and the separation that comes with it. So this is not just theory and personal. Sorry, this is not just theory for any of us. This is personal. This involves real people and names and faces and stories that you carry with you as we come into this message this morning. And my goal today is to talk about marriage and divorce as faithfully to Jesus' words as I can, while at the same time trying to graciously and sensitively share these things, because I know for some of us in this room that these are particularly tender things to talk through. With that being said, marriage and divorce is just in the media all the time. Shell and I, I'm saying Shell and I, I've kind of watched about half of it with her, but she's been working her way through the new season of The Crown. Anyone else? Okay, we've got some very firm hands, some softer hands. But The Crown, this season, is pretty significantly about marriages falling apart. All of the Queen's children going through divorces and separations and then wrestling with the, the brokenness of their marriages. Three weeks ago, at the end of October, a big divorce announcement was made, Giselle Bündchen and Tom Brady's divorce being finalized in the media and kind of being put out there as this weird hybrid of news, gossip, and entertainment for everyone to read about. I don't know how many of you read multiple articles on what was going on with them. Thinking about today, I thought of a big kind of thing in the media in 2014, Chris Martin from Coldplay and Gwyneth Paltrow, who famously reframed divorce in a more positive light by popularizing the term conscious uncoupling to describe the way that they were choosing to end their marriage and separate their time together. And today, one of the things that I find almost more surprising, speaking about this with people and even watching things on TV, is that divorce is reframed as just breaking up. It's just a breakup, you know, kind of no different to dating. It's, it's a breakup, further softening both the purpose and beauty of marriage and also the seriousness and significance of separating your lives. I read um, a recent Instagram post about a celebrity divorce. You might have seen this or not, but they said, after time and consideration, T and I have made the difficult decision to separate. This decision was made with love and mutual respect for one another. We have realized we need to take some time and make sure we are each living our most fulfilling and authentic lives. We started this journey as best friends and our relationship will continue to be a priority 
not only for us, but for our dog, C. <laughs> we sincerely appreciate your support and ask for privacy as we navigate this new chapter. Some of you may have seen that. You may know who posted that. Or you might follow them, you might not. The reason I took their names out is actually just because that feels like such a familiar kind of post to me. That post feels like a kind of formulaic, uh, culturally reasonable way of putting this out there, the, the kind of thing you would expect that you could insert any names into. And I want to share those examples today, not to make light of them, not judgmentally. I, I do not know those stories. I do not know their feelings, their pain, their decisions. I don't know those couples at all. But I wanted to share those illustrations today, particularly because what we have been speaking about is the difference between Jesus's way and the way of our world or our culture. And as I put those forward, I'm sharing something of what our culture speaks about and thinks about the purpose of marriage and the reality of divorce. And what we see here is something of a, a picture and understanding of marriage and divorce in our culture that its purpose is that we would live our most authentic lives and be fulfilled and be happy. And that marriage is one of the vehicles that we can get there with. But if that vehicle is not getting us where we want to go, or if we want to change directions, or if we find another way, actually it's okay to get out of the vehicle of marriage and either get into another vehicle or actually to find our own way to do this. We've said this again and again in this series, that Jesus has said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And this morning as we look in Matthew 5 and a few other passages, that's exactly what we want to do. We want to compare and contrast something of what our culture has to say about marriage and its purpose and divorce with Jesus and his words about it. So with that in mind, if you've got a Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew 5 verse 31. And we'll see the familiar format that we've gotten used to of how Jesus frames these different teachings. Matthew 5 verse 31 it was also said, you have heard that it was said. This time Jesus isn't referring back to the Ten Commandments. He's referring to Deuteronomy 24, and we'll get there in just a little bit. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Something we see in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is really serious about marriage. He takes it seriously. This is actually the second teaching in a row where Jesus is speaking specifically about marriage. One of the commentators I read said that in his social commands, there's six of them in this passage. Two of them are about marriage. That's 33% of what he's saying has got to do with marriage and how we follow him in our marriages, which means that this is a significant space for discipleship and our worship of God. We see in Matthew 5, two very short verses on marriage and divorce. Clearly, um, this is not everything that the Bible or Jesus has to say about this. And a little bit later in Matthew 19, what Jesus does is he expands on what he has already said in Matthew 5 with a bit of a theological Q&A. He literally has some of the teachers of his day coming to him and asking him questions on marriage and divorce. And in Matthew 19, verse 3, it says this, some Pharisees, if you don't know who those guys were, they were very, very moral, self-disciplined men who knew their Bibles really, really well. Some Pharisees approached Jesus to test him and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? And that phrase on any grounds is really, really important to the conversation we're going to have today. This is actually a phrase that would have been familiar to the hearers of that, but this is pointing to a theological debate that has been going on since the days of Moses. So we're going to get to that in about 10 minutes time in Deuteronomy 24. But before that, Jesus moves on in Matthew 19 verse 4 to 6 and says, haven't you read? We've said this again and again in the series. Jesus in conversations on life and faith takes us back to the scriptures. What do the scriptures say about this? Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. 
here, as we've said already in this kind of mini-series in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus points us back to Genesis 1 and 2 and to the beginning and to the Garden of Eden and to Adam and Eve and the first marriage and the first couple. And he reminds us of some foundational truths about marriage, which really just honestly don't line up with the modern secular view on marriage. Genesis 1 and 2 and Matthew 19 teach us this. Firstly, that marriage is always between a man and a woman. Secondly, that sex and living together comes after marriage, not before. Thirdly, and this might sound funny to say, but it's becoming more important to say in our culture, that sex and marriage are designed for only two people, not more and not less. Jesus here is speaking about a commitment to monogamy, one man and one woman for life. Not polyamory, a relationship with more than two people, or polygamy, marriage with more than two people, or even, this word might be new to you, but sologamy, when you marry yourself. Jesus is speaking about something else here. And then crucial to our message today, that marriage is designed to be a lifelong commitment, bonding two people together as one flesh. Something you may or may not know is that the whole of scripture is bookended or framed by two weddings. The first is the one we've spoken about a bit in the series, this one in Genesis 2 between Adam and Eve. And I, I just love to think about this. I think this is one of the passages I most love to preach on at weddings because it's the first, the prototype wedding and marriage for all time. And I just, I don't know if you've ever thought about the day and what Adam and Eve's wedding would have looked like. Because it's just them. There's no other people. There's a lot of animals and there's God and that's it. And I think God would have worked very hard on that day. I'm not saying Eve was bridezilla, but I think it would have been, they had no other friends or family to pull into this. So I picture this would have been beautiful outdoors. If I was Adam and Eve, I wouldn't have picked a cave for my destination wedding. But I like to think maybe they found a beautiful cliff right by the sea, got married there. God was working hard. He walked Eve down the aisle. He officiated the wedding. Afterwards, he cooked all the food. He DJed the reception. He did the first dance. He caught the bouquet. It's Adam and Eve got, he's the one making the tunnel for them when they go out to their car at the end of what's going on. <laughs> yeah, Jackie, it just doesn't work that way unless you, you could kind of make it work. God is working really, really hard at that first wedding. That's the Genesis 2, the first wedding. Then in Revelation 19, at the end of time in heaven, in a day still to come, we see the ultimate wedding, the, the final wedding. It's a wedding between Jesus and his bride, the church, the people of God. It's the ultimate union that all other marriages and unions have been pointing to. And between those two weddings, we live. Between those two weddings, we are living now. And every wedding that you might go to, that's a day that is pointing ahead to that ultimate wedding, that ultimate marriage between God and his people. And that's a big thing. Our weddings and our marriages here on earth are all pictures of that union, which means that our marriages and our weddings are ultimately not just about us. They are about him and his purpose in this world. This is my favorite quote on marriage. If you haven't read the book, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller, I think it's a beautiful and encouraging book. But in it, they say this, the Christian vision for marriage is to look at another person and say, I see who God is making you and it excites me should point at my wife when I say that. I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it here on earth, but look at you now. And that's the decision that a bride and groom make on their wedding day, and then every single day afterwards for the rest of their lives or until God calls them home. The wedding day is a day about vows and about covenanting and about committing to one another as God joins you together for the rest of your life. And I love that word covenant. It's an old school word. You know, like words like reckoning and redemption and atonement. These are words that don't seem relevant to our lives, but really are. Covenant is a beautiful word. And in essence, covenant is what Christian marriage is all about. And it's at the heart of the vows that people exchange on their wedding days. I think I've married about 30 people now, each really special days. 
No, 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 I've, I've married 30 different people, yeah. <laughs> I always feel funny with that phrase, but yeah, I've officiated 30 weddings, I've married one person. Um, and pretty much with each one of those situations, building up to that day, doing premarital with the couples, most of them have said, we want to write our own vows. And I've said, brilliant. Let me coach you and help you with that. Because one of the things we see on TV and in movies is that people don't exchange vows. They say speeches to one another. Have you thought about the, wed uh, the movies you've seen or the shows you've watched recently where there's that moment? You know, there's the officiant. And then there's the couple, and they look into each other's eyes, and they hold their hands, and they say a speech. And generally, it sounds something like this. It says something like, I have never felt this way before. I never knew love could be like this. Until I met you, I never knew that someone could dot, 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 complete me, make my life the way it is, whatever. These are things you want to hear from the person you marry. These are beautiful and romantic and encouraging and kind. They're just not vows. They're just not vows. They're not a covenant. And whenever I hear those, and I mean 99% of the time I'm hearing this on TV. This is fiction. But still in my head and my heart, it's like there's these red flags. And I'm like, please let me sit with this couple before they go through this. Please, let's just clarify some of what you're saying here. Because I'm thinking to myself, like, that's amazing that you feel that way. But what about in two weeks or a month or six months or a year if you don't feel that way? What then? What then? What does that mean? Or what about if things change in your relationship and the thing that this person has brought into your life that you never knew you could have is no longer there or is not there for a while? Or what if this person who has given you so much all of a sudden requires a lot from you and the next season of your lives together looks like a lot of sacrifice and serving them and not getting much in return? Or what if someone else comes into your life down the line who makes you feel even more than this person made you feel? Or brings something into your life that is even greater than what they had brought? What then? I just want to sit and say, can we process those things before you say these vows on TV? Classic pastor move. And I think when I hear those speeches, as much as I would love to hear that from Shell, and those are beautiful things to say. I think the traditional marriage vows are much more beautiful and rich. And the idea of covenant is much more incredible and points us more to the, the love of God that he has towards us. So let's look at the traditional vows for a second. Brendan, if you can put them on the screen. This is something that you would have heard if you didn't say if you are married. I groom, take you bride to be my wife. To have and to hold. We love that bit. Having and holding, I'm here for it. That sounds amazing. <laughs> for better or for worse. Now, like, that sounds great, but when you process that, we're all about better. But what does worse mean? How much worse? <laughs> like, like, can we get into the fine print of this before we make this commitment? Like, let's look at the bottom of the page. For richer or for poorer? Again, I'm here for richer. What does poorer mean? How poor are we talking about? in sickness and in health. And I think this is where it's like everyone's picture of the future, they're healthier. No one as they think about their future on their wedding day is thinking about dad bod and changes that come to you down the line. You always think you're gonna have that six pack. You're always gonna be healthy. You're never gonna be sick in that future vision of yourself. But what if they do get sick for a long time? What if they do get sick in a way that they really need to depend on you or need a lot from you? What about that? to love and to cherish from this day forward until death do us part, which could be a long time. If I hit 80, which might be a good thing, I've got 44 more years married to Shell. It's a long time. This is a big commitment. These vows are radical and beautiful. And then there's that other traditional part that you've probably heard or maybe you've said that talks about forsaking all others, which must be the most radical part of a marriage covenant and commitment. Forsaking more at all others means even those more attractive, more intelligent, more successful, more funny, or more compatible. You could add other adjectives in there. What you say on your wedding day when you make those vows is that if in the future, which is an unknown period of time and just this unknown space, if in the future someone else comes into my life who is more compatible with me, who ticks one of or all of those boxes, I cannot even consider them 
as a partner or a spouse because on this day, I've already forsaken them in front of God and my family and friends and all others and chosen this one person exclusively. Marriage is an act of faith into an unknown future because we don't know what the future holds and we're committing ourselves to this person come what may. It makes marriage so much more radical, so much more beautiful, that love so much more incredible. In Matthew 19 verse 10, after Jesus has spoken about some of these things, his disciples say this to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. I'm pretty sure if any of them were married, their wives were not there at the time. (laughs) But they've heard Jesus' words on marriage and they've gone, this is weighty. This is significant. And if they're single, they're going, Jesus, like, I don't know if I want to get married if this is what it means. I don't know if I can do this thing that you're talking about here. And I think that means that would be a good biblical response today to the sermon about marriage and divorce. For some of you who maybe are single or unmarried right now, to hear this message and say, I don't know if marriage is for me. Or this is a weighty and significant thing. I need to process this because this is a big deal. The scriptures don't teach that the purpose of our marriage is our happiness, as much as that is a beautiful byproduct of a healthy marriage. The scriptures don't teach that the purpose of our marriage is self-fulfillment or finding our authentic self. In fact, Gary Thomas in his book, The Sacred Marriage, says that Jesus' disciples are realizing that marriage is more about our holiness than it is about our happiness. It's more about what God is wanting to do in us and form in us, how he's wanting to form Christ in us than it might be all of these other things that are a beautiful byproduct of a healthy marriage. I realize this isn't the most romantic message to hear this morning, but I think it's really important for us to hear. There's a significant weight and weightiness to these kinds of vows and this kind of commitment. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's a really important thing. And I wanna illustrate it this way. Here is an example of some consumeristic vows. Imagine going to a wedding and hearing a couple say this to one another. I, so-and-so, I groom, take you bride to be my wife, to have and to hold, for better or as long as I'm still enjoying myself, for richer or as long as you pay at least 50% of the bills and can hold down a decent job, through short periods of minor sickness that don't inconvenience me too much and in health, to love and to cherish for as long as it suits me and feels fun, from this day forward or as long as you fulfill my needs. I don't know if anyone's been to a wedding like that. Holy smokes. (laughs) I don't think, even though I do believe some people in their hearts, that is what they're saying on their wedding day. I don't think anyone is that brutally honest with their vows. And if they were, you could just imagine the romance getting sucked out of the room. Like there is no couple in the history of the world that would hold hands and look into each other's eyes and say that to one another with tears pouring down their cheeks. That is not a beautiful commitment to one another. That's the kind of wedding where you walk out of there and you take your gift. You're like, you don't get a cheese grater from me. <laughs> like, I'm not into what you guys are doing today. It's a completely different thing. Covenant love, on the other hand, doesn't work that way. Covenant is a beautiful kind of unconditional commitment and love. And the reason why is that our marriages, like we said, are meant to point to our relationship with God and more than that, to Jesus' love and sacrificial death on the cross for us. A love that cost him literally everything. A few thousand years after Genesis chapter two, a little bit after Jesus' words in Matthew 5 and 19, Paul the apostle writes to a church in Ephesus and he says this, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And Paul is adding something else to this beautiful Genesis 2 picture of marriage. He's saying that our marriages are designed to display the love of God, kind of like a billboard or a lived out sermon that we would display to our spouse and the world the love that Jesus has for us. Yes, in our marriages there is romance and there's sex and there's fun and there's companionship and all those good things as byproducts of the relationship. But more than that, 
the purpose of our marriage is not happiness or self-fulfillment. It's to show our spouse and the world the gospel, the incredible love and sacrifice God has for us. And when I'm doing a wedding, what I'll often do is just before we finish, I'll say to the groom, today we celebrate as you make a covenant and commit to love your bride the way Jesus loves you, even when you don't feel like it or when she doesn't deserve it or marriage is hard work. And then I say to the bride, today we celebrate as you marry the groom and commit to love him even when you're tired or when he hasn't done the thing that he said he promised he would do again or when he has man flu or gets grumpy or whatever it is. <laughs> You'll know it's true. I'm a grumpy cat. And I think following the example of Jesus, it's a very high bar. That's why Jesus' disciples say, I don't know if anyone could do this. But we can't give away something that we haven't received. But as we receive the love of God in our hearts and our lives, we are empowered to love our spouse in the same way that God has loved us, imperfectly, but increasingly like the way he loves us. And as we experience and live more deeply in the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, we're able to sacrifice more and more for one another in a Christ-like way. And as we experience the forgiveness of Jesus and our constant sins and failings, we're able to forgive them when they sin against us or fail us. And as we live in and continue in Jesus's unconditional commitment to us, we are able for the long run to be unconditionally committed to our spouses too. The biblical vision of marriage is beautiful, but it is very different to the picture of marriage we see in our culture. I did a wedding just over a year ago, and I pretty much shared what I've been sharing now. And afterwards, a guy I'm an acquaintance with, um, he comes up to me and he goes, Grant, I love that. My favorite part was that bit that you did at the beginning, I always do this in a wedding, where you said, I realize in a crowd like this, we're all on different pages when it comes to our experiences and views on marriage and faith. He's like, I love that bit, because I am not on the same page as you. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, he'd had a few beers. <sighs> he had a bit of a loose tongue. The groom came up to me afterwards and said, that guy loved the ceremony and he loved what you shared. And I said, yeah, he just didn't agree with it. And that makes sense in this culture that some people might not agree. But in Jesus' day, it was true too. The context of Matthew 19 and Jesus saying these things is wild. Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, had just been imprisoned and then executed, beheaded in Judea for preaching these things on marriage and divorce. And the Pharisees who knew this think to themselves, maybe if we ask Jesus to speak and share his view on marriage and divorce, maybe Jesus will get killed. Maybe that will deal with our problem with him. So into this very toxic and intense environment, Jesus is speaking. And he says this, answering the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? The Pharisees feel like they've got him. In verse seven, Jesus, or they say, why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? And if you go back to the Old Testament and to Deuteronomy 24, that was something that Moses gave to the people of God as a concession because of the hardness of their hearts and because many of their marriages were breaking and tearing apart. He, he gave the certificate of divorces away to protect the women of his day. Now, we don't know the Old Testament the way Jesus' hearers did. We can't connect the dots as well between some of those phrases and Deuteronomy 24 and just go, okay, we're there, we, we get what's going on. But this is what Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 says. It says, If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a certificate of divorce, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. I read those words, as some of you probably do, and I read displeasing and something indecent, and I think that is very vague. <laughs> like there is a lot of latitude in those words for how they would be interpreted. And that's exactly what happened. From that day on, there were debates around theology, around what Moses meant by something indecent. The Hebrew words are debar ovar. This was shorthand. This was a summary. This was like a, a succinct expression or, or summary of what all of the theology around divorce and remarriage was. It's probably a phrase like we would say Roe versus Wade. 
If you say that phrase, everyone knows what you mean, you, you know all that is around that term. But in a thousand years, people wouldn't. Similarly for us, we hear Dubai Ovar, we don't know what that means. And when you hear something indecent, we don't know what that means. But for the people of Jesus' day, they knew that there was a whole span of thinking around divorce and remarriage that came from Deuteronomy 24 and all of this. And there were these two rabbis, Rabbi Shammai, who took the conservative approach around Dubai Ovar. He argued that something indecent strictly meant adultery. In other words, only adultery was grounds for divorce. And then there was a rabbi named Hillel who took a liberal stance around Dubaovar. He argued that something indecent meant anything at all that you didn't like about your wife. That was a reason for divorce. This was an ultra-liberal position around divorce. And it became very popular in the first century. In fact, by 200 AD, this was the most popular view held by most rabbis in that day. And I want you to think about that for a minute. This was a very patriarchal society, a society where men were at the top of the food chain and to some degree, however you wanna frame this, women were either seen as the possession of their husbands or at least were very dependent on them for money and just survival. And here Hillel, this rabbi, is granting permission to, the, to these men to rid themselves of their wives for any reason, any reason at all. Seriously, I, I read the different writings, the interpretations of Hillel for this passage. And these are some of the things. They would be really funny if they weren't so sad and abusive and unkind. He said if she burns the bread, divorce her. Or if she has warts, or if you consider her lazy. She has no eyebrows, only one eyebrow, or bushy eyebrows. There's a lot to do with looks around whether the nose is too big or too little, or the ears are too little or too floppy or an overbite or an underbite or bony ankles or knees, or if the sole of her foot was as wide as that of a goose, or if she was ambidextrous, or, this might intrigue some of you, if the in-laws moved into the same city to be near their daughter, divorce her. <laughs> some of you are like, well, Grant, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, this Halal guy. Could be some wisdom in what he's saying there. Again... <laughs> Oh, glad that landed so well. <laughs> Again, this would be really funny if you didn't think that this would ruin some people's lives. This, this interpretation was devastating for many women in that day. And honestly, I, I hear this and I think, I shared social media po posts at the beginning. Can you imagine the social media posts in that day? I wrote one for your entertainment. <laughs> Shell and I have decided to part ways. <laughs> You are my wife. Um, Shell and I have decided to part ways because I've discovered that her foot is wider than a goose's foot. And I'm suspicious that she might also be ambidextrous. Besides that, she burnt my toast yesterday and I'm still cross about that. Your thoughts and prayers are appreciated. Please respect our privacy during this tough time. Halal's interpretation was the original no-fault divorce. But of course in that culture it only went one way. Wives could not divorce their husbands, but husbands could divorce their wives. They could toss them aside, frivolously divorce them for any one of these reasons if they held to Hillel's teaching. So for both the men and the women in the crowd listening to Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount, they're wondering where's he gonna land? Is he gonna land on the side of Hillel or is he gonna land on the side of Shammai? What's he gonna say? And Jesus is very clearly team Shammai. He declares that he stands with a conservative view around this law and that divorce is only allowed if the act of adultery has been committed. And I love this. Jesus is there to protect the covenant of marriage, but he's also there to protect the woman who is so vulnerable in this kind of environment. Both last week when we spoke about lust and then again today as we speak about divorce, I've highlighted that Jesus is speaking to the men. Not because this isn't true for the woman too, but because in that culture and day, the women were so vulnerable to the mistreatment of men who had such great power. And into that patriarchal society and culture, Jesus proclaims the way of his kingdom and he calls for an end to the objectification of women and the mistreatment and neglect of women. That's what's going on here. Matthew 19 verse eight and nine. He, Jesus, told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. 
I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And while the Pharisees are pointing back to Deuteronomy 24 and ways that you can get out of a marriage, Jesus is pointing them back to Genesis 2 and God's vision for marriage, the ideal of marriage, this prototype picture of marriage that we want to hold to and follow. Rabbis at that time taught a difference between a command in the law and a concession. A command expressed God's heart. It showed what God desired from the beginning, what his will was. A concession was something God allowed because of mankind's fallen condition. We are all impacted and affected by sin. And not only that, our world is impacted and affected by sin. Things are not the way that they should be. And Jesus says that this allowance for divorce in Deuteronomy 24 was not a command, it was a concession due to the brokenness of our world and the fallenness of our own hearts. So what does this mean for us today in light of verse eight and nine? Kevin DeYoung says so succinctly and helpfully, every divorce is a result of sin, but not every divorce is sinful. Every divorce is a result of the brokenness and sinfulness of the world that we live in, but not every divorce is sinful or wrong. Let's get practical here with the rest of this passage. When can I or when could I get divorced? I think as we've seen, kind of looking through the scriptures and looking at just this high view that Jesus has of marriage, that this should be rare and an exception and in a radical case almost like the amputation of an arm or a leg. There are times when amputation is necessary. There are times where you need to remove a part of the body. But amputation is always the last thing that you do. It's never the first, it's not in the first few, it's always a last resort because of its cost. And when you amputate something from the body, you are literally making one flesh into two. You are separating one thing and separating it from the body. Jesus says to us that divorce should not be an option for us except in the case of adultery. But why would that be the exception? Well, the logic of this is important. Adultery breaks the covenant that has been made. When someone unites themselves to someone else, someone other than their spouse sexually, they have broken with their bodies the covenant that they made with their words. This is the same reason that you can remarry after your spouse dies. No, the, the covenant is over. Your spouse is gone, so you are free to remarry. And adultery can kill or end the marriage covenant, making divorce a legitimate option. And although Jesus here in Matthew 5 and 19 gives us grounds for divorce, he never commands divorce. He never says, you must get divorced if this happens. For Jesus, reconciliation and redemption would always be the ideal or the goal. In fact, this teaching in Matthew 19 on divorce and marriage comes right after the end of Matthew 18 and Jesus' parable on forgiveness, where Peter says to Jesus, should I forgive them seven times? And Jesus says, no, not seven, 70 times seven. Not that he's making 490 the cap. Like after that, <laughs> you're out. Like 490 strikes and you're gone. No, because he's saying, actually, our forgiveness should be infinite. There should be no end to our forgiveness and grace. And marriage very much is like that, practicing forgiveness horizontally in the same way that we have experienced it from our Father in heaven vertically. Shell and I have spoken about what we would do if you know, one of us committed adultery. And obviously this is in theory, we haven't experienced this in our marriage, but we've said we would want to pursue reconciliation and redemption. If possible, that's what we would want to do. And I don't say that to say, look at us, look at our marriage. I don't say that to say that we don't think that this would be a big deal or really hard to work through or take years and years and years, maybe a life to work through. But the reason we've spoken about that and the reason that that would be what we would want to do, ideally, is because every single day of my life, I'm unfaithful to Jesus. Every single day of my life, I choose to commit adultery with other gods and idols to believe other gospels or messages of good news, to chase down other pathways of life and salvation, believing that they will give me what I want rather than Jesus. Every day I'm unfaithful to him. And even though that is true, every single day Jesus pursues me and forgives me and loves me 
and he never forsakes me. I may fail my wife or she may fail me, but Jesus will never fail us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. This example here shows us that this would be the ideal, redemption and reconciliation, if possible. But I also need to say today that that is not always possible. It is not always possible. And in the situations where adultery has broken or killed or ended a marriage, divorce is not a sin. But again, like the example of amputation, that doesn't just mean because it's the necessary thing to do that it's easy or that it won't be costly or that it won't be painful. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're saying, okay, Grant, I'm running different scenarios in my head. Um, Is that really the only situation where I can end my marriage and get a divorce? Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 also says that abandonment would be grounds for biblical divorce. When a spouse chooses to leave you or abandon you, when by their words or their presence, they reject you permanently. In that kind of situation, again, this is a breaking or a rejection of the covenant that has been made. And in the case of abandonment, you would have biblical grounds for divorce. And then thirdly, many biblical scholars also believe that the logic of Jesus and Paul's arguments here may allow for divorce when a spouse has broken the covenant of marriage by acting and living in such a way where you're just unable to live with them anymore. I'm not talking about just frustration or irritation. I'm not talking about personality clashes or just like a bad run. I'm talking about abuse or in a situation where a spouse is putting you in a place where your life is in danger. Now, if you are here today and that is you and you are in danger right now and you're experiencing physical or verbal or sexual abuse in your marriage, you need help. And we would want to help you and protect you. You can speak to the elders of this church after the sermon. Or if you don't feel safe to do that today, Brennan's going to put up an email address and my phone number. You can reach out to us. And we would want to get you the care and support and help that you and your spouse would need. I also want to say your safety and protection would be our first priority. We would want to work to connect you with support and help and safety and never leave you in an unsafe environment. I also want to say in light with this, the divorce doesn't need to be the next step. It might not be one you ever take. It might not be the only step that you take. But in the case of abuse, a space of separation may be in order, maybe even a really, really long period of separation for the sake of safety and protection, and to hopefully see repentance and change in your spouse's heart and life. But let the next step you take be one to get help. And then if your spouse does refuse to repent after a longer period of time, they may in effect have left the marriage or abandoned you based on 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15, and you may no longer be bound in marriage to them. Again, this process is something to walk through slowly in close consultation with your pastors and with a professional who specializes in caring for victims of domestic violence. But that initial decision to get safe and protect yourself is something that you shouldn't be slow to act on. We understand that these situations might be confusing. You might not feel safe right now if this is you. We would never confront your abuser in an environment until you are safe, and we would want you to know that. But we also know from research and just the conversations we've had this week preparing for this message, that domestic violence is progressive, meaning it will get worse without intervention. And if children are involved, the harm they endure to witnessing abuse is far greater than the impact of physical separation from the abusive parent. So please let us help you and your spouse to get the care that you need if this is you. And if you're unsure whether what you're experiencing is abuse or just everyday relational conflict, here are a few things to consider. Abuse is intentional, meaning the abuser is willfully using abusive tactics to get what they want. Abuse is methodical. Abusers steadily increase abusive behaviors to get what they want. 
Abuse is a pattern. It's not a series of isolated events, but an overarching pattern of behavior designed to inflict harm on an individual. There are tactics like shaming, exploitation, threats, intimidation, and self-pity. They're all common tactics used by abusers. And then power. The abuser uses power, whether that's physical, emotional, or financial, to achieve control over their spouse or other victims. By whatever means necessary, abusers want their spouse to be under their control, physically, emotionally, financially, and even at times, spiritually. And lastly, the abuser wants what the abuser wants. There's a desire there. Any outside needs or concerns are discounted at the expense of what they desire. And just to say, if this sounds like it could be you, or you want to talk through this more, we just want to say we are available for that, and we would want to help you get the help that you need. Lastly, can I get remarried? It's obviously a very huge question for those who've gone through divorce. A friend of mine put this better than anything that I saw. So I want to read this to you. The first part of it seems very simple and obvious, but he builds a good argument. When someone gets divorced, they are no longer married. I know this seems obvious, but this fact is very important in understanding what Jesus is teaching. If you are officially divorced, you are no longer married. Therefore, by definition, if that divorced person gets remarried, it is no longer by definition adultery because they are no longer married. Jesus' argument is not that divorced people cannot remarry. His argument is based upon whether or not the original divorce is viewed as divorce in God's eyes. Yes, you may have been granted a certificate of divorce by the judge, but that paper doesn't necessarily mean the divorce was valid in God's eyes. So if you're divorced in God's eyes and remarry, there is no adultery. But if your marriage is still intact in God's eyes, if you've gotten divorced for reasons other than what we've spoken through today, then any remarriage would be causing adultery. When divorce is legitimate in God's eyes, remarriage is an option. But just like with marriage, and as we've spoken about the seriousness and weightiness and beauty of marriage today, this would be something that you would want to process in community with pastors over time. So if you are wanting to get remarried, go slow. There is no rush here. Marriage is a big deal. So please don't enter into it hastily. Secondly, heal. We've spoken about marriage being God bonding two people together and making them one. So when there is a separation or a divorce, there is a tearing apart. One becomes two. And that means that you might need to go through an extended period of healing. When none of us in this life are ever perfectly whole or perfectly healed, but make sure that there are a number of people around you that are saying you are whole, you are healed to go forward in this. And then go through a period or process of premarital counseling. Prepare for remarriage. Have the conversations that need to be had. Put things on the table. Go through a process where if there's anything that needs to be considered, it is considered. And then the decision can be made whether you go forward with the marriage or not. I know we've ended on a practical note, but I want to end just with a few questions for us in the room, where, wherever you are. Firstly, Maybe you want to close your eyes here. You don't need to do that. But if you do, what is the Holy Spirit highlighting to you today? As we've worked through this topic, as we've worked through these passages, what do you think the Spirit of God might be wanting to say to you or highlight to you? If you're single in this room today, if you're single here, next week we will be speaking about singleness. But if you're single here and you do desire to get married, is the reason that you want to get married because of the picture of marriage that Jesus presents to us? Or is it the picture from rom-coms or some of the things that culture speaks about? And then if you're married here today, how's your marriage doing? When did you last have a check-in with your spouse? When did you last talk about what's going well or what needs work? And is your marriage trending towards becoming more and more that picture of marriage, that vision of marriage that Jesus has, or are you just going through the motions? Can I ask you guys to stand with me? We're going to pray. Holy Spirit, as we've spoken about this topic today, I just welcome you here to 
Work in our hearts, comfort our hearts, encourage our hearts. We want to respond to you and the things that you're highlighting to us and the ways that you would have us respond. And I pray, Lord Jesus, for everyone in this room, married or divorced, married or single, whichever stage of life we find ourselves in, whichever station of life we find ourselves in, I pray for your help to follow you and know you and enjoy you and love you and walk with you into everything that you've got for us. We're going to take communion in just a moment. And while I was just thinking through this message and how we would respond, I felt like the Spirit gave me just a picture. And as we take communion, we're remembering what Jesus has done on the cross for us, the life he lived, the death he died, the sacrifice he made for us. But in Christ, we find a new identity. We remember as we eat the body and drink the blood that we've been washed clean and adopted into God's family and given a new life. And the picture I had this morning, just thinking of this time of communion, is almost one of labels. In Christ, we are a new creation. In Christ, we have a new identity. In Christ, we have a new life. But even some of us in this room who are Christians maybe have labels on us that either we've put on us or others have put on us or Satan has put on us. These labels or terms that God doesn't see or God doesn't call us by, but maybe we have allowed those to define us more and more. And I just thought as we come to the table today, it would be good in prayer just to take those labels off first. Maybe that is a label like divorced. Maybe that is a label like unfaithful. Maybe that is a label like failure. Maybe that is a label like bad husband or bad wife or bad father or bad mother. Maybe that's a label like I'm not valuable, I don't have worth, I'm not important, I'm not loved. If you have any labels like that on you, as we come to the table today, we're reminded that that is not the way God sees us and that is not what God calls us. He has washed us clean. He's given us a new life. He's given us a new family. He's given us a new future. He loved us enough to give his whole self for us. And as I said, although we fail him daily, although we sin against him daily, he pursues us and loves us and chooses us and wants us. So I want to invite you to respond to Jesus this morning and to come and receive just this picture of what he has done for us on the cross. Amen.